This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we've got Dr. J.V. Fesco with us. We're talking about his book, Word, Water, and Spirit. It's a conversation about Reformed baptism. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Guys, we got an exciting program for you today. I have read this book by Dr. Fesco. Uh, It was really encouraging and enlightening. It was a great uh, man, uh, it, it deep dive into scripture and history. It'd be one that you'd want to check out if you're wanting to study Reformed baptism. But before we dive into it, I want to remind you that we're an entirely crowdfunded ministry. There are links in the description. If you want to support the channel, uh, you can give a one-time gift on PayPal or a recurring gift on Patreon. Uh, if you do choose to give on Patreon, you'll get access to extra content. Like we just drove up to Kansas City and filmed, man, 22 episodes in four days. Uh, Francis Chan, we interviewed Christine Kane, we interviewed Mike Bickle, a bunch of people uh, that we interviewed while we were there in Kansas. 22 different interviews, and we're starting to release them. Uh, two of them are already up with Francis Chan and uh, Bickle. Those those episodes published today, and we'll continue to publish more uh, tomorrow and the following days. Uh, looking forward, we will release clips on YouTube, but the full videos will release one at a time each week. So I'll be looking forward to those as well. Without further ado, well, it's also probably important to say Michael Roundtree's not with me because it's Tuesdays and he's got a lot of staff meetings on Tuesdays. So we're, we're uh, just me and Dr. Fesco. So fortunately, it's it's the, the, the what's the word? The, the handsome people are all here. Michael isn't here to defend himself. So I'll, I'll give a low blow uh, to him. Uh, Dr. Fesco, before we dive into our subject matter today, can you tell us a little about yourself and your ministry? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, really great to be with you. Uh, A little bit about myself. Uh, I've been an ordained minister since 1998. Uh, I went and studied at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland for my PhD. And uh, I was a full-time pastor for about 10 years. And then after that, I worked at uh, Westminster Seminary, California for 10 years as both a professor and the academic dean. Uh, And now I've been here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm the uh, Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. And so uh, at the same time, I, I still love uh, preaching, even though I'm uh, formerly not a pastor. Uh, I have uh, been preaching almost weekly, uh, morning and evening, for a, a while at a local area church, helping a church out that's in need when their pastor was ill. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, I've also got my wife and my three children, and we live here in the greater Jackson area. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a little bit about myself. Well, uh, you know, let's start off with uh, talking about your book. Why write a book on baptism? I feel like baptism has had as much ink spilled being written about as water used in immersion. Um, so tell us a little bit why why baptism? Why was that book important to you? 
you know, at that point in my ministry, I had uh, written a, a pretty, uh, I don't know, decent sized study on the doctrine of justification. And there were some related issues connected to uh, baptism and justification, but also myself as a, a former Baptist uh, who had gone over into the Presbyterian church, I uh, wanted to make sure that I really understood the doctrine better, but at the same time, I wanted to be able to provide, maybe we could say a, a one-stop shop uh, on the doctrine where I you know, gave people access to historical information, uh, biblical theological uh, explanations of, of the doctrine, and then a doctrinal exposition, because I had you know, found, as you said, so many books on the topic, but there was not necessarily just one book where you could find something that covered both history, biblical theology, and, uh, and theology itself. And so that's what I uh, tried to put together, and uh, hopefully I, you know, came close to hitting my mark. <laughs> no, you you nailed it. I'll be honest. I, I, I got into this book thinking, you know, you read books that are specifically written, you know, uh, like something on the baptism of the Spirit. Depending on what tradition is writing on baptism of the Spirit, you expect to have, like, source material that just talks about this or just talks about that. Pulling from stuff that just agrees with your position, you, you really gave a thorough reading in here. Uh, of the historical position, the biblical theology, and I'm really, really impressed by the book. Uh, I told someone the other day, if there was a book that was going to convince me to go Reformed uh, when in my baptism, it'd be this one. So uh, let me ask you uh, the difference. This is a question on differences on baptism. For people who are watching and they're just, you know, mainline evangelical, which I would say is the vast majority of our audience, you know, they think of the two different kinds of baptisms. There's like the Roman Catholic immersed for salvation. And there's another kind of baptism, which is adult baptism for, uh, you know, a sign that's a symbol. Can you explain maybe the different kinds of baptism? What would be credo or believer's baptism, maybe pedo baptism and kind of a regenerative salvation? And if there's any kind of shades of gray in between, can you just explain the kind of positions that there are out there and which one you hold? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that we could start off, say, first with uh, what we perhaps maybe a huge segment of the church population here in the U U.S. and perhaps maybe even uh, more internationally. And that's what you would say a credo Baptist position or credo is the Latin word for I believe. In other words, it's believers only baptism that in order to receive baptism, you have to make a profession of faith. And, and in this vein, you have to be an adult. So that's, you know, one position. A second view would be what we call a paedo-baptist view, and that literally comes from the Greek word paedo, which means child, and that means that uh, it would be uh, any one of uh, churches that include infants uh, that as the legitimate recipients of baptism, but from that big category, uh, we need to subdivide it into, say, we would say uh, two major categories. The first category would be, say, Roman Catholics, for example, that believe that when infants receive uh, baptism, uh, they receive it and that it, uh, it cleanses them from sin and it also uh, gives them uh, a new heart. And in that sense, we would talk about it in terms of baptismal regeneration. That's one subset of the paedo-baptist position. Uh, the second subset of the paedo-baptist position would be what you find in most mainstream you know, uh, conservative Presbyterian denominations and reformed denominations that say that it's, uh, it's the administration of a covenant sign uh, to an infant child because he's born within a covenant household. And just as uh, Abraham 
circumcised his uh, male heirs uh, and his male offspring uh, to mark them as belonging to the covenant. So uh, we uh, baptize our children as belonging to uh, and being participants in the covenant. This doesn't mean that they don't have to believe. They absolutely do. And and when you administer that baptism to that infant, it's in the hopes and anticipation that that person will make a profession of faith. But it does not actually convert the person the moment that they receive it. Uh, and so those are the, the two main uh, categories. Now, one other thing to note about the pedo-baptist position is that just because it says pedo-baptist doesn't mean that they don't administer baptism to believing uh, you know, to new converts. They do also perform adult baptisms. It's just that uh, the label is indicated there to reveal that they, they also baptize in addition to adult converts, uh, children, uh, particularly the children of, of believing parents. So that's a, a quick thumbnail sketch as to the, the large scale positions. Excellent. No, I appreciate that. And and you would hold, uh, like you said, the, that Reformed Presbyterian form of pedo-baptism, not, not the Roman Catholic version. That's an important distinction for people who are listening, um, that there this is, in, and I, I like the illustration that's often used in these circles, uh, such as circumcision, that a circumcision is a sign um, of this covenant, and it, in, it invites a, a child into the covenant and the participation of that covenant, and yet that child is not deemed righteous just because of circumcision. In fact, they're deemed righteous by faith in God and faith in God alone. So if you need a kind of context, think of baptism as circumcision. And as we do that, I think that uh, there's a quote in your book about uh, uh, doctrine, and that doctrine being canonical doctrine. I want to read it real quick. Doctrine is canonical. Doctrine must be built on the whole of Scripture, not merely the New Testament. Uh, so that's a very quick quote. But my question was, how then um, do we build a doctrine of baptism around the Old Covenant? Like, what are we missing by not using the Old Covenant? And often when people talk about baptism, they run first to John the Baptist's baptism, maybe. Uh, and then they talk about the Pauline forms of baptism, and they talk about those. But they, they often neglect Old Testament foreshadowing and Old Testament passages. Uh, so what are we missing by neglecting the Old Testament and talking about baptism? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that what we need to do is when we're looking at baptism in itself, uh, you know, it's it's obviously important to look at that, at that particular topic and look at the various instances where we find the doctrine or the teaching appearing, say, in the New Testament. But on the other hand, we also want to set a larger canonical framework for uh, the doctrine. And I think uh, noteworthy in this regard is the fact, say, that the Apostle Peter in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following, uh, he makes the connection between baptism and the flood, where he says that the flood is a foreshadow or type of baptism that is something that anticipates it. Uh, and then in addition to this, when Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 2, uh, talks about the gospel and he says, for the promises both to you and to your children after you, he is drawing upon the very language that God gave unto Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 when he gave him the sign of the covenant, that is uh, circumcision. And so the larger framework is not only canonical in the sense that we always want to try to build doctrines canonically, that is looking at both the Old and New Testaments, uh, but the larger framework with the in context with which or in which or by which God deals with people is in covenant. 
Uh, and so he comes to us in covenant. And so that means that we want to understand the larger category of the signs of the covenant, because in this sense, we can make this broad, large scale observation, which is uh, God deals with his people in the same manner, both in the Old and New Testaments. And so when we find out how God deals with people, say in terms of covenant, and then more specifically covenant signs, then we can establish that larger context for understanding the doctrine of baptism itself. Excellent. So what would be some of those Old Testament passages that you would have people look at, study, uh, in order to better understand New Testament baptism or, or just covenants in general? Yeah, I think that one of the first is that we would want to think about, say, Genesis chapter 17, where God gives unto Abraham the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And there's some really important language that unfolds there. Uh, the, first, the, the first observation is this, that uh, when God gives a sign, what he does is his sign is always anticipated by his word. And there's a broader pattern in scripture that God first speaks, then he acts. He does some sort of action, which is itself revelatory. And then he follows up and gives a subsequent interpretive word. And so the simplest way that we can explain that is God is his own interpreter and that God gives both word revelation and act revelation or revelation through actions. And so God makes his covenant with Abraham. And then he says, now I'm going to give you a sign. And this is the sign of that, that the covenant. And this is its circumcision. And the big picture here is, is that uh, the seed of the woman who was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, the seed of Abraham, uh, who is ultimately Jesus, according to um, uh, Paul in Galatians chapter three, uh, he was going to come and he was going to be cut off in a bloody circumcision, or we could say bloody circumcision crucifixion um, in, in, in his death on behalf of his bride. And uh, this is why it's circumcision. It's a bloody ritual, but it's also a circumcision of the, of the male member uh, because it's the seed that is to arrive on the scene. It's the promised descendant. Uh, and so this is why it's circumcision. And so in connection with that passage, uh, you would also want to look at, say, Romans 4, where the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, that circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. In other words, circumcision was a sign and seal of the gospel covenant promise that he made to Abraham. And then later on, we also know, say, from Deuteronomy 10, 16, where uh, God tells the, the Israelites through, um, uh, through Moses, circumcise your hearts, uh, remove the foreskin of your heart, stop being stubborn. And then later on in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse, verses 6 and following, uh, God says, I'm going to have to circumcise your heart. I will circumcise your heart, knowing that we can't do it. So that even in circumcision itself, circumcision uh, is not only a bloody rite, but it's also something that symbolizes the regeneration of the heart. And as we see those realities, we find that, say, Paul, for example, in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, places those realities, circumcision and baptism, in parallel so that we can say that they're both uh, speaking, if you will, the same doctrinal truth, one looking forward to Christ and then baptism looking back onto the work of Christ, but both of them pointing to the person and work of Christ. 
Excellent. Well, you mentioned over uh, a couple times in that uh, in that discussion there. You mentioned that baptism is a is a sign, and uh, you know the often phrase is used that it's like an outward sign of an invisible faith or an, an inward action of some kind. You know, can you can you talk to us about the means of grace and and explain what means of grace is, and then kind of unpack for us like is something actually happening is something spiritually happening in the baptismal waters should we approach you know the baptismal waters like zwingli approached communion like it's just a symbol it's just a wedding ring you know you take your wedding ring off you're still married it's just a symbol or a sign of that marriage how should we approach baptism is there is there something going on yeah, no, that's a, another good question here. We want to observe the basic point here, first of all, that we can do things with words. Uh, and so if uh, if I go and I tell my child, and they, they've done, the, you know, physiological research on this, I love you, um, that, you know, hearing something positive like that literally makes physical changes uh, to the person who hears those affirming words. There are physiological changes that occur. So we know that we can do things with words in that regard. And uh, so in that vein, uh, what God does with his word is he transforms us. Now, unlike our ordinary words, uh, it's not only God's word in terms of the audible sound or the words that we read on the page, but it's when the Holy Spirit takes those words and uses those words by his supernatural power to transform and change us. Now, secondarily, we would want to say that the visible form of those words comes to us in the various covenant signs, whether it's Noah's rainbow, whether it's circumcision, whether it's the Sabbath day uh, for the Mosaic covenant or for the new covenant, the Lord's Supper and baptism, so that there's a sense in which we can say the, 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 the word of God creates the sacrament uh, and so that what it is is it's a visible form of God's word so that what the uh, what the preached word is to the ears we can say that the sacraments or the sacred signs baptism and the Lord's Supper in this case are the word to the other senses to the eyes to our sense of touch uh, to our sense of smell uh, to our sense of taste so that God preaches to our whole beings, uh, to us body and soul, mind and ears and sight and smell and touch through the sacraments, but that ultimately those sacraments rest upon the word. And so to that sense, when we participate in the sacraments, when we say, for example, take the Lord's Supper or receive baptism or watch somebody get baptized, God uses that visible word in conjunction with his written word, with the preached word, to change us, to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in that way, we can say the sacraments, the word of God, they are a means of grace, the means by which we receive God's saving favor towards us. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the in your book that there is no there's no neutral encounters with God's word or his sacrament that it, it's doing something. So, so I guess I would ask when it comes to those who are taking of the sacraments in an unworthy fashion, what's taking place in the lives of people who are taking the table in an unworthy fashion or getting baptized because 
their pastor told them they had to, or their spouse told them they had to, and there's no internal work taking place. Do they receive some kind of, you know, spiritual shot in the arm or is it condemnation? Like what's going on there? Yeah, I think that what we have to remember is that if the sacraments, if baptism and the Lord's Supper are a form of divine revelation uh, in conjunction with the word, then we always have to recognize that God's word, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, is always double-edged. It is a sharp two-edged sword dividing between the division of uh, bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. And so we see this throughout redemptive history, but especially with baptism. Again, in 1 Peter 3.18 and following, uh, Peter makes the connection between baptism and the flood. And with the flood, uh, that was both judgment and deliverance. It was judgment unto the sinful, unrepentant people of the world, but it was also the means of deliverance unto uh, uh, Noah and his family. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, uh, says that the Red Sea crossing was a baptism, that Israel was baptized into the, the cloud. They were baptized into the Spirit, is what he is saying there. They were baptized into Moses. Except we also remember that not only the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, but so did uh, Pharaoh and his army. And so for Pharaoh and his army, that baptism was judgment. Whereas conversely for Israel, they received that baptism unto redemption. They were delivered through the Red Sea. And so likewise, we want to say the same thing about baptism, and we can say the same thing about the Lord's Supper, which is why the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, warns the people at Corinth that some of them have taken the Lord's Supper unto their judgment, even some have died, he says, uh, which tells us that the Lord's Supper is double-edged, that if you approach in an unworthy manner, uh, you, it can bring judgment upon you. Uh, and so in this vein, when I was a pastor and I was getting ready to baptize an infant, I would go to the, the family, to the parents, and talk with them about it and say that uh, they are receiving this baptism uh, because we are looking to the hope and the promises of the gospel that, the, that baptism preaches, if you will. But on the other hand, in the event that that child never made a profession of faith, these waters of blessing could become waters of judgment, waters of drowning even, drowning in the, 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 the overwhelming flood of God's wrath, just as uh, the, the people during the flood drowned in the flood, though Noah and his family were delivered. And so I say we never... You know, never administer baptism in the hopes of judgment, but we always have to recognize that, uh, that you know, God's revelation is double-edged. And so if we don't factor this, then sometimes what happens is I think people look upon baptism as if it were a talisman, that all I need to do is get wet and I'll be fine. I'm covered. I've got my fire insurance. But in that sense, receiving, just receiving baptism apart from a belief in the promises of the gospel, whether as an, uh, an infant who grows up to make that profession of faith or as an adult who makes that profession of faith is no different than just sitting in a church. Just because you go to a McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. Just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian. You actually have to believe in the promises of God. And so that's why we always have to factor the double-edged nature of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Yeah, I've got two questions for you as kind of a follow-up to that. Like, what if you had someone who was a member of your church and they had infants and, you know, they they chose not to baptize their children and wait for their children to make a profession of faith? Um, would you allow members to do such a thing? I mean, it, it seems as if you, you, the way that I hear you understanding Scripture is that they, they must baptize their children to be part of the covenant family. Uh, is that required for people who attend typically Reformed churches? And there's a follow-up question to this that'll certainly cause a bit of controversy. This is from Joe. Joe wants to know, is there really a Reformed theory on baptism? I would imagine that there are many. This gets into, I suppose, uh, the difference between the Westminster and the 1689 groups of Reformed. Uh, so I'll let you speak into both of those. The first, uh, church membership, someone's a member, they they don't want to baptize their kid. Is that permissible? Second, is there only one view of Reformed baptism? Okay. Um, with the first, uh, I'm, I'm going to answer, of course, from my own, uh, you know, confessional context as a Presbyterian, and that the first thing that I always tell people is this, is that if you believe in credo-baptism versus pedo-baptism, I say that we both can't be right. <laughs> Uh, one of us has to be wrong. I had somebody once say when I said that, well, no, you could be both wrong. And I was like, no, actually, I don't think that's possible. Either you baptize infants or you don't baptize infants. Okay, so I'm coming from the uh, assumption that the Bible teaches that we have to, we are biblically mandated to administer the sign of the covenant uh, to our our covenant children. And so in that sense, yes, it's it's I would say it's a sin. Uh, not to bring our children forward for baptism. That being said, and in all fairness, my Baptist brothers would say, I'm sinning by, by doing this. So uh, so long as we recognize that we both what, what we both believe might be sin, uh, we can hopefully nevertheless in, interact one another charitably. Uh, just as my Baptist brother might think I'm sinning, I would say that my Baptist brother is probably is sinning because he's not bringing his child forward for baptism. Now, that being said, uh, on the other hand, we could also say that, at least in my denominational context, if there were parents uh, that did not want to bring their children forward for baptism, we would say, okay, that's fine. We certainly don't want to force anybody to do something that they don't uh, you know, have faith in, in, in doing. Uh, but on the other hand, my denomination says that those children that are not brought forward for baptism technically cannot be formal members of the church. Uh, because baptism is the means by which we join the church. And if somebody is withholding baptism from their infant or from their child, then technically they're not members of the church. That doesn't mean they can't attend. That doesn't mean that they are, cannot you know, participate in the activities of the church. And of course, we would do everything we could to disciple, evangelize, and teach uh, those children. But uh, the difference would be is that we would say that for the family that brings their children forward, that family is, is, you know, adult and child, parent and children are both members of the church. Uh, whereas in the family that they don't bring their children forward, we would say, well, just the parents are members of the church and their children are not. So that's the way that, you know, at least some denominations uh, cut, cut that, uh, that do, piece of the pie. Does that also include that uh, children, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. does that Go ahead. include that children are not able to, to take the table? Is that what that kind of susses out to in the sense that, yeah, in that there's a distinction we would say is that there are uh, communicant members and non-communicant members. 
uh, think of it this way, that my children are members of my household, but they're not allowed to drive the car, <laughs> uh, not until they get their license. And so there are non-communicant members of a church, there are the children, that until they make that profession of faith, that then they they cannot uh, they can't take the Lord's Supper. Uh, whereas if there's a family that has not brought their children forward, they would not be able to be members of the church, presumably, until they make that profession of faith. In other words, until the parents let them, uh, you know, make that profession of faith, receive baptism, and then yes, uh, take the take the Lord's Supper. Uh, there are some Reformed denominations that would probably not let the parents join the church because they hold to what is called confessional membership, which means you have to agree with the, the whole confession uh, before you're allowed to join the church. In the denomination in which I'm in, we say, no, you don't have to agree with all the confession, but you know we would take the path that we do where the children would not be technically uh, you know, formal members of the church. Um, as far as the second question, I would say yes. There is, there are reformed doc, reformed doctrine of the sacraments of the of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and where we find those things uh, codified is in the uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the in the standards, the larger, shorter catechisms, as well as in the uh, Westminster Confession, uh, or conversely, in the uh, the three forms of unity, which are the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism which are the doctrinal standards for the Dutch Reformed tradition or the, the continental tradition. Uh, you mentioned the Second London 1689 Confession. Uh, here's where we wanna get down to splitting hairs <laughs> uh, in that I have no problem calling my, my Second London brothers and sisters Reformed Christians because they embrace a Reformed soteriology. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they don't necessarily embrace all of the key elements of a reformed ecclesiology or, and this is potentially fighting words, but I don't want to throw any rocks, but I'm just calling them like I see it. And that they also have a, a distinct form of covenant theology that is not the same as the covenant theology uh, of the Westminster Standards uh, or the three forms. And so as a purely historical matter, like when I'm doing historical work, I say that the Second London Confession is a particular Baptist uh, document. And that's what the Baptists in that day called themselves. They didn't call themselves Reformed Baptists. They called themselves particular Baptists. And so I would put the Second London Confession in that category. And, and don't get me wrong, I have loads of Reformed Baptist friends and I love them dearly, and I hope that they love me dearly as well, even though we disagree on these matters. But uh, I would say that, yes, if the Reformed Confessions, uh, Westminster and the, and the Three Forms, define Reformed doctrine, then there is, I would say, a Reformed doctrine of baptism. Excellent. Excellent. So there, there are three things you talk about. You said there's themes of baptism or themes as it relates to baptism in your book. You talk about the new creation covenant judgment and eschatological judgment. I think I'm framing those correctly. Correct me if I did not frame those correctly. But then additionally, can you maybe unpack some of those? You've already done that a little bit in this show, but can you explain how that's a helpful paradigm in understanding baptism as a whole? Sure. I think one of the things that I found when I was studying the doctrine of baptism and one of the reasons why I wanted to put uh, these ideas in the book is because I found various scattered treatments on these different themes. 
as you mentioned, baptism is new creation, baptism is covenant judgment, baptism is eschatological judgment, uh, that is baptism is end times uh, judgment. Uh, but uh, I couldn't find any one book where you could find them all you know, treated as part of a larger uh, discussion on baptism. And so, for example, uh, I always encourage people when I'm talking about this, baptism is new creation. Do a search, and you can do this these days with our computer Bibles uh, very quickly. Put in the words water and spirit and see how many times water and spirit show up. Water and spirit show up in Genesis 1 and uh, Genesis 1 with the creation with the spirit hovering over the waters. It, it occurs in Genesis 8 with the, uh, the bird, if you will, or a wind, same word for spirit, uh, blowing the, the waters back and the new creation of sorts emerging out of the waters. Uh, water and spirit occurs in, uh, say, the Red Sea crossing. If you cross-reference a number of passages, you can assemble that, that puzzle together. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and spirit. The Apostle Paul in, um, in Titus chapter 3 talks about the washing of regeneration. And that's a very unique biblical word that only occurs in two places there in Titus 3 as well as in Matthew 19, 28, where he talks about in the regeneration, or as the ESV translates it, in the new world. Uh, and so in other words, the washing of regeneration, you could literally translate as the washing of the new world that happens through the spirit. In other words, every, uh, the new creation is just like the old creation and that it emerges out of water through the work of the spirit. And uh, you see this, say, in the book of Ezekiel, where there's a, a fountain that floods out from beneath the threshold of the temple that Ezekiel sees in, in chapter 47, and it floods the earth. Uh, this is what Jesus talks about when, uh, or I'm sorry, what John the Baptist talks about, or I like to poke my Baptist friends, John the Presbyterian. But uh, when John the Baptist talks about <laughs> these things, when he says, I baptize you with water, and remember, the Spirit descends upon Christ there at his water baptism. Uh, well, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with spirit and with fire. And so when, uh, when um, Peter picks up baptism in 1 Peter 3, uh, he's talking about connections between the flood and uh, baptism. And then in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about the water, well, the earth being flooded with water is now being reserved for what essentially he account amounts to a, a flood of fire. And what is this flood of fire? But the outpouring of the spirit, the water or the, 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 the spirit and fire that John said Jesus would baptize the world in, which means that it's new creation imagery is connected with baptism. It also means that there's eschatological judgment connected with baptism that so many people think of baptism merely as the water that gets me wet. But rather rather than the water that gets me, the lone individual, wet, my baptism with water is symbolic and points to the entire uh, baptism of the whole creation in the spirit that Christ has poured out upon the creation with which he's flooding the world as we presently speak. And the fact that I have faith in Christ means that like Noah, I will be delivered from this fire flood that Christ has poured out upon the creation. Uh, and this is ultimately, as we talked a few minutes ago, 
also manifestation of covenant judgment is that we can say that there's a sense in which in baptism, my old man, my old connection to Adam dies as it's drowned in those waters and out of those waters emerge uh, the, the new creation, the new man, my new existence in Jesus, the last Adam. Uh, and so I, you know, to be honest, I, I don't often say this, but that middle section with those three chapters, I think is my favorite part of the book. I, they were the most fun to write. I feel like they're the most things that I really enjoy talking about just because there's a sense in which we know all of these things intuitively from reading the word, but what we may not have done is put them all together like the strands uh, on a necklace, uh, strands, uh, or I should say the pearls on a strand uh, so that we can see them all together. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful chapters for sure. Let me ask you to unpack a little bit more Luke 3.16. It's the passage where people are looking at John the Baptist and thinking maybe he's the guy and they're like, no, 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 he's coming after me. He's going to be mightier than I, right? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, if you go on Logos Bible Software, and I'm telling the audience, not you, I, I think you know this, uh, it seems as if there's like a 50-50 split on baptism of fire and that by the spirit and fire. It seems like half of the, the Logos guys, I'm not going to say this is all theologians everywhere, but it seems to be a fair split. Um, that some of them say this is a sanctifying fire. It's to purify the heart. It's to to make one holy, like get the dross off, if you will. Uh, the other group says, no, this is the judgment. You see, he, he takes the wheat into his barn and then he tosses the chaff out to be consumed with unquenchable fire. Uh, so the, the guys who say, no, this is uh, the Greek over here seems like it's saying that you get the spirit and the fire. These guys over here say, no, the flow of the text seems to say uh, that the fire represents judgment. Would you kind of weigh into this for us? Have people who are trying to make up their minds on this passage, how would you encourage them? What was the interpretive lens that you used to help solve this for you? Yeah, if memory serves me correctly, it's been, oh goodness, maybe uh, 12 years since I wrote the book, or, or at least first published it. But um, James Dunn, I think, has a, a great explanation in his book on the Holy Spirit, where first the first observation is, is he says that the, the grammar of the passage doesn't allow for two distinct, uh, you know, baptisms, but rather the, the, the baptism of spirit and fire are one and the same. But secondly, what I would say to that is, is that there's a sense in which I would agree with both parties. They're both right. It's just that they're only talking about half of half of the truth and that it is a purifying fire indeed. And there's a sense in which you catch a glimpse of this at Pentecost where the tongues of flame are dancing above the heads of those who have received the outpouring of the spirit. And so in that sense, we can say that the, the outpouring of the spirit and fire is the refiner's fire that purifies us. But if we say with Peter and with Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, 2 Peter chapter 3, that Christ is flooding not just simply the church, that the baptism is not just of the church, but that it's of the entire creation and that he is saving the entire creation that was once in Peter's language is deluged with water, which is unnecessary, but he's specifying there's a water flood and now it's being preserved for a fire flood then it's the same spirit that purifies the saints is also the same spirit that is bringing the judgment of fire uh, upon the unbeliever. And so uh, in this sense, it ties into the double-edged nature of revelation. 
uh, that it's always double-edged. And so going back to the statement that you quoted of mine earlier, there are no uh, neutral encounters with God. And so that's the way uh, that I would explain uh, Luke 3.16. Excellent. Hey, let, let's talk about church history for a little bit. You, you used uh, a couple of different uh, source material to talk about church history. You looked at the Didache, Didache, uh, depending on how you pronounce, depending on how you put the syllable on the right emphasis. Um, and then uh, the, there's the Shepherd of Hermas, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Augustine. Uh, you, you looked at all of these guys and you, you looked at the history surrounding them, but some of these don't seem to agree with you. Why, why did you choose to interact and engage and in, in, you know, make public these writings of some that seem to agree with you and others that seem to not agree with you. Why, why these? Yeah, I'm always a proponent that whenever I do this in my doctrinal work, uh, I always do my best to do a historical survey. And then with whatever I find in the evidence, I do my best to present it as even handedly as I can so that I can say, for example, with somebody like Tertullian, uh, Tertullian rejected infant baptism. You know, there's not a monolithic uh, claim in the early church that there's only infant baptism. Uh, he rejected it. Uh, and so I want to, you know, showcase that to say that, you know, here's uh, an outlying voice and we need to listen to that. Or, for example, uh, when you get to uh, the Didache, for example, when it talks about the different modes of baptism uh, and what is preferable and it puts them in a tiered rank. Uh, that living water is preferable to standing water, uh, for example. So in doing that, we get hopefully what is a full picture so that at the end of the day, uh, when I present my own doctrinal constructions, uh, if people don't agree, they can at least say, well, at least he did his best, or at least I did tried my best to interact with dissenting opinions uh, so that I can, they can say that he at least, you know, dialogued with them and that the book isn't just simply a monologue where he asserts things and doesn't fairly engage with dissenting views. And so that's why I also engage, you know, uh, particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist views, proponents of the, the Second London Confession and, and other views and uh, Roman Catholic views and, and uh, Anabaptist views and, and Lutheran views uh, so that, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, I've made a persuasive case that at least has done, I've done my best to engage with those, those other positions in a responsible way. Okay. So let's, let's do that real quick live for everybody. Let's talk about the, uh, the different positions and I'll let you give a response to those positions like you, the Didache and, and, and Didache. I'm going to decide how to pronounce this one of these days. I, I just go with both to cover my bases. Anyway, uh, when looking at that one, he talks about like fasting before you get baptized so in your book, you're like, well, obviously they don't expect infants to fast, right? Uh, and, and in another uh, piece of material in the Shepherd of Hermes, it seems as if baptism is regenerative somehow. So maybe maybe respond to both of those real quick. Sure. I think that one of the things that, as I would understand, say something like the Didache, is to say that uh, the reason why they were supposed to fast was obviously we're dealing with an adult convert. So in that sense... Uh, you know, when you have uh, uh, an early uh, church setting, you're oftentimes going to be dealing with adult converts uh, because Christianity in that sense is not like the nation of Israel where it has been around for generations, where the Israelites had multiple generations of male infants that had received the sign of the covenant. Uh, and so for those making, you know, a, a profession of faith, there was 
uh, typically as sometimes as much as a year of preparation, both in receiving doctrinal instruction and then not only the doctrinal instruction, but you know, people making sure that these people were serious about their profession of faith. Uh, so that that was important. So that's why they would be encouraged to fast, because often in the early church, uh, people would be baptized, typically often once a year for new converts, uh, often at Easter, for example, uh, the celebration of the birth of Christ. And so you, you see that practice. Uh, and so I say that if you were to deal with subsequent generations, I think that you find, you know, the introduction of the, 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 uh, the rite of infant baptism. Uh, as far as um, the Shepherd of Hermas, which somewhat leans, seems to lead in the direction of, say, maybe some sort of view of baptismal regeneration. Uh, I would say that, you know, when Paul went to go plant the churches in Galatia, uh, very quickly they abandoned the gospel. And so in that sense, uh, doctrinal error is always lurking by, you know, when in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus that, hey, ravenous wolves are going to come in among you. Uh, and uh, so he was warning them. And so in that sense, I think it shows that how quickly and easily any doctrine, whether it's Christology and the denial of the incarnation, uh, whether it's the doctrine of justification and the mixing of faith and works, or in this case, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the belief that baptism regenerates, uh, you see how quickly and easily uh, those types of deviations from, from biblical teaching uh, can occur. So uh, I try to showcase that to just, you know, show that this is a, a part of the, uh, the ebb and flow, if you will, uh, of the doctrine. And I, I didn't intend to use a water <laughs> image there, but I guess we'll go run with it. No, that's great. That's great. So you, you mentioned one of these arguments from Tertullian, and I have heard like credo Baptist use this as an argument against pedo Baptist. And when I read your response in the book, I was like, well, obviously you can't use this argument, right? Like I didn't, I didn't realize that it was being used like this, uh, out of the context. So, so, so the, the Tertullian just unpacking that, uh, would say he would advise against pedo baptism. Um, but, but that really shouldn't be used as an argument for my credo Baptist today and say, Hey, look, we've got a credo Baptist back in the day. Explain to us why that is the case, because I do think this is probably an area where we've maybe have overstepped and sourced people that sound like they agree with us when they really don't. Yeah, I think that, say, with Tertullian, you know, the first observation that I make, I teach church history and I tell my students this all the time as we're looking at these different things, is that whenever you have a massive span of time separating one person from another, while we profess the same faith and we believe in the same scriptures and we worship the same God, at the same time, we shouldn't automatically assume that uh, they agree with us or just because we find something that looks like our view, that this is some sort of anticipation of it. And so to, to that point is that, yes, as you said, Tertullian does say that, you know, infants should not be baptized. But when you find out why he affirms that, it's not because he believes that um, that uh, infants were not the proper recipients of baptism or that it should only be given to believers. Rather, he said that should an infant receive baptism, then that infant was liable to the responsibilities of the gospel and therefore would incur greater uh, obligation and greater responsibility and even greater guilt if that infant should grow up and then later disown 
uh, the uh, the gospel. And so rather than be baptized as an infant, that uh, that infant should wait or the parent should wait until that infant could make a profession of faith and specifically own the responsibilities of the covenant and therefore not uh, potentially incur uh, greater guilt. So put it off. Don't obligate them to it in the first place. That is a very different uh, type of, I think, uh, argument than what you find, say, in a common uh, credo Baptist position uh, these days. And so I, I try to point that out to say, yeah, you know, he, he wanted to put off uh, the baptism of infants, but it wasn't for the same reasons that we might find a Baptist saying today. Excellent. Well, you know, we had uh, uh, Dr. Michael Spiegel from Dallas Theological Seminary on the show. Well, that was like yesterday, um, but a long time ago when we had him on the show, a year ago, uh, he actually talked about uh, if he had to give a just a general average of soteriology, he goes, well, there's definitely guys who sound more Calvinistic as church fathers, there's definitely guys that say more Arminian as church fathers, but if I have to get an average, I'd say it's probably like Arminian-ish, right? But he did the same thing when it came down to baptism. And he goes, honestly, I think the vast majority, if I had to average out the church fathers, it'd be like Presbyterian style baptism. I mean, this is a DTS guy who, I mean, dispensational, you know, reformed DTS is like, yeah, probably Presbyterian. And I was like, dang, like no confirmation bias alive in this guy at all. So, so maybe I could ask you to point me to what would be like the theologian or groups of theologians maybe in, in, in early church fathers that we could look at if we wanted to say, hey, uh, I want to look at some some early material talking about baptism that looks like a Presbyterian kind of baptism. Where would you point them? Yeah, I think that one of the, at least the chief figures that comes to mind would be St. Augustine. And there, you know, at the same time, you know, the reformers, I think, a appealed to him for a couple of reasons. But I'll note this at the outset, they did not appeal to him uncritically. Uh, but Augustine believed that infants should be baptized. Uh, why did he believe that infants should be baptized? Well, because they too were stained with the guilt of original sin. How did they receive the guilt of original sin? Because they're in covenant with Adam. Uh, and he talks about this in the city of God, uh, where he appeals to the, um, the, uh, the, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, uh, which is an apocryphal book uh, that Protestants don't have in our canon. But nevertheless, we can say that it's a useful uh, you know, tool in the sense that you could think of it as an uninspired commentary on Scripture. And they, based upon uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17 uh, in Sirach 14, 17, uh, say that Adam was in covenant. So he frames guilt in, uh, and inherited guilt in covenantal terms. And we can also say that he gives us uh, arguably the, the bare bones of a covenant uh, theology of baptism and of the sacraments in general. Now, where the 16th century reformers demurred from, from Augustine is on what he believed baptism accomplished. Uh, you know, Augustine was a, a believer in, in baptismal regeneration, and that's where reformers such as John Calvin and others, you know, took a step back and said, okay, we're going to take these certain elements that Augustine has in his theology of the sacraments, and then we're going to set aside uh, some of these, uh, some of these others, such as the idea of baptismal regeneration. So, uh, this is where you could say that the reformers, in many respects, towards the church fathers, were principally eclectic 
In other words, they didn't buy into somebody's doctrine wholesale. They simply took the elements that they believed were consistent with Scripture, uh, and then they set aside those elements that they believed were inconsistent with Scripture, or even perhaps we could say uh, erroneous and therefore contrary to Scripture. Uh, and that would be, I think, you know, Augustine would be perhaps, you know, the poster child, if you will, uh, of that understanding. Great. So I want you to weigh in on two other questions from our audience, and then we'll kind of get some closing thoughts here. Uh, we had some really good questions that did come in. Uh, Sean wanted to ask about the baptism of the dead. Uh, weigh in on that verse there. But additionally, there was another person in here that discussed rebaptism. What, what would you say to people who want to be rebaptized? Uh, what would your thoughts be on those things? Yeah, the baptism for the dead is the idea that you could be baptized by proxy. In other words, if somebody had died, you could be baptized on their behalf. And it's an error uh, that, in the sense that the Apostle Paul identifies but doesn't directly address uh, because he wasn't talking uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about baptism per se, but rather about the resurrection. And he says, why, if you think that there's no resurrection, would you uh, argue for baptism of the dead? And so he just kind of brushes by that really quickly. The fact that, you know, he's talking about resurrection means that he's not going to go into detail about that particular error. But based upon the collective witness of Scripture and especially of the baptismal instructions uh, in uh, whether it's in Paul and Romans 6 or especially the instructions that Christ gives us in the Great Commission, we would say that being baptized in, on behalf of somebody else is not possible and therefore it's error. As far as your second question with being rebaptized, there's a sense in which it all depends on how we look at the doctrine of baptism and, and what, what, what we mean by it. And so I once knew a, a girl in, se in seminary, and I, I recount this in the book, where she had been baptized as a child, uh, you know, making her profession of faith. So that's one. Uh, and then while at seminary, she, you know, made a rededication of her life and she believed that maybe she wasn't a believer. So she was baptized on a seminary retreat. Uh, and so that was number two. She came back to her, um, you know, her seminary church and her pastor said, well, let's just be sure here and let's baptize you here at the church. So that was baptism number three. And then when she went back to her home church, uh, her home pastor said, hey, let's just be sure let's baptize you, uh, you know, here. And so that was baptism number four. So one baptism as a child and then three within a succession of several months. And it's because she and those pastors were the, under the impression that in order to really for baptism to be effective, it depends upon you. Uh, and it depends upon your sincerity. And while I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss the idea that for an adult convert, the, the, the convert is professing something through their baptism. The more important question that I want to ask is, is what is God professing through the baptism? Uh, and in particular, if baptism is a visible form of God's revelation and it is a preaching of the gospel to our other senses when we join it with the, the preaching of the gospel through the word, then we should ask, what is God saying in baptism? And then the very next question is, is does God stutter when he makes his promises? And the answer I would say to that question is no. And so I would say that God means what he says in baptism. And so therefore, even if I have doubts and I'm plagued with terrible, terrible you know, anxieties and fears about whether I'm, I'm saved or not, 
I can rest assured that God does not take back his promises. He does not, you know, stutter when he speaks. And so I would encourage the person who was baptized already to say, there's no need for a second baptism because in the end, your salvation doesn't rest upon your fidelity, but rather upon God's fidelity to his word. And, and this, does this come in some sense from Augustine's, I think it's the Nestorian controversy. I apologize if I'm not going to nail that right. Um, the These guys are like, hey, there's this great persecution that arose. The priests backslid. And, and now that they've come back, do they need to get rebaptized to the people who were baptized under their tutelage? Do they need to get rebaptized? In fact, I remember reading some of the um, uh, creeds, confessions, catechisms, th- those things that arose during the Protestant era. And they were like, hey, what about those who've been baptized under the Roman Catholic system? You know, they were thinking that this baptism actually saves them. And they seem to say that your baptism is still good. Can you maybe weigh into that? Sure. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, the Donatist controversy. Donatist, was that's right. by the name of Donatist. And yeah, when, when priests uh, at that time, or we should say bishops, were apostatizing from the faith, and then they would co- try to come back in, other, you know, bishops would say, hey, your apostasy has invalidated your ministry and therefore, not only has it invalidated your ministry, but it has also uh, invalidated the, the, the baptisms and the marriages that you have performed. And so uh, it was Augustine who said, no, uh, baptism does not depend upon the worthiness of the minister who administers it, but rather it depends upon the faithfulness of God. And so the, the, then the question then hinges upon this, this, this chief issue is that, was the baptism performed with water? Was the baptism performed in the name of the triune God, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And was it performed by a, a minister uh, in, you know, in, in good standing, a lawfully ordained minister? And if it meets those criteria, then we would say yes, then it's, it's a legitimate baptism. Um, and this is what the reformers did in the 16th century when they were asked, you know, well, are Roman Catholic baptisms valid? Well, because they were in agreement with Augustine that the validity does not uh, re- rely upon the worthiness of the one who administers it, uh, or even the church that administers it per se, but rather upon the promises of God. Just like somebody can read the word of God out loud, and it still is the word of God, regardless of, in a sense, who reads it. Uh, then baptism administered by a minister is still, uh, you know, legitimate baptism so long as it, we can tick those boxes. Now, that's not to be said that throughout the history of the church that that has always been an agreed upon position. And in the 19th century Presbyterian church, they rejected that position for a while and required uh, that anybody coming into the um, Presbyterian church who had been baptized as a Roman Catholic uh, would have to submit for a proper and first genuine baptism, but it was in the 20th century in the Presbyterian Church of America where that position was reversed, and they reversed the 19th century decision, and therefore left the decision up to individual churches within the denomination and their elders to make the determination whether or not a person's baptism was uh, legitimate. But the majority report, at least within the Reformed tradition, has been to say, yes, we recognize that at the bare minimum, it's a legitimate baptism, but we can make this distinction. In the same way that I may father a child out of wedlock, and this is purely hypothetical, so let's let's generalize this. 
let's say a father fathers a child out of wedlock, even though illegitimate, that child is still the child of that father, even if done illegitimately. And that I think gives us a window perhaps on some of these baptisms that otherwise we might think are specious or you know questionable is that they're still baptisms and genuine baptisms, even if in some sense uh, illegitimate. Excellent. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the program. I want to give you an opportunity to give a kind of closing thought, something you want people thinking about as they go away and study baptism. But before I do, I just want to remind everyone, uh, this is kind of the material that we're going through from Dr. Fesco, uh, Word, Water, and Spirits, a Reformed View on Baptism. I was given this book by a friend when I was in Miami, uh, and I have really enjoyed it. I, I think it's just a, it's even if you're not coming from the Reformed perspective, I'm not. I think it's a great sparring partner to think through issues. Um, I think often we will get and talk about baptism and read guys that we agree with and never really engage with material that's different from our perspective. And I'll tell you, this is both enlightening, encouraging, and edifying as you read through this. Even those three chapters that he mentioned are his favorite chapters. You can walk away learning from those chapters and not coming away with an entirely Reformed perspective on baptism. So I think overall the book will be uh, wildly edifying to anyone who picks it up. So, Dr. Fesco, what would be that one thing you want people walking away thinking about meditating on as we close our program today? Yeah, I think that the idea that I would want to leave with everybody is that remember this, that when God speaks to us, he speaks to us through his word, which we have written in the scriptures, but he also speaks to us through water and through bread and through wine. Uh, the, the, the signs of the covenant. And in this sense, he preaches the gospel to our entire beings. And what he preaches to us is the message of Jesus Christ and, uh, and the gospel of salvation that comes through him. And so when you participate in the Lord's Supper or when you receive baptism or when you see a baptism being performed, it's not just the person who is getting wet who can benefit from that, but rather with in combination with the preached word you are visibly seeing the, the gospel being preached as that person receives baptism. And you can remember that as that person was baptized, so too were you baptized. And that water baptism points to the greater baptism that Christ has poured out upon his church and the creation through the Holy Spirit, which brings us life and life eternal. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Fesco. And for those of you who are watching, man, you've been encouraging, edified by this program. I'd encourage you to like the video, subscribe to the channel. If you hated the conversation, make sure to hit the dislike button twice. Uh, and and uh, as you do so, consider supporting the channel. You know, we are entirely crowdfunded, which means we produce this content because you think that it's worthy of content and, and, and you subscribe to our you know, Patreon channel. So there's a couple ways you can give. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or a recurring gift on Patreon. You get access to extra content, like some of the interviews that we did up in uh, o Oklahoma City, not Oklahoma City, Kansas City. Yeah, we filmed a bunch of those videos and they're up on Patreon already. Uh, and you get access to things like book clubs and uh, live Q&As with our team. So lots of really great content out there. I want to thank Dr. Fesco once again for coming on the program. And if you're out there, you enjoy the program, make sure to subscribe and consider supporting. Blessings, guys. And we'll see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings.
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.